Hello, and welcome to a very special episode of Talking General Practice, the podcast from GP Online. I'm Emma Bauer, the editor of GP Online. In this episode, I'm looking at the issue of assisted dying and asking whether it should be legalised, and if it was, how could it work? Later this year, a bill will be introduced to the Scottish Parliament that could see assisted dying legalised in Scotland. Meanwhile, south of the border, the House of Commons Health and Social Care Committee has been taking evidence on assisted dying as part of an inquiry into the issue it is running this year. The Scottish Bill, which is still being drafted, is a Members' Bill being put forward by Liberal Democrat Member of the Scottish Parliament, Liam MacArthur. The Bill will be the third attempt to legalise assisted dying in Scotland since 1999. So could the law actually change this time around? Just a quick warning, throughout this episode of the podcast, there are discussions about death and suicide. I think that we do dying really badly in the United Kingdom. I don't want to suffer. I don't want to end up in pain. And I would like to know I can have a choice. I think it would interfere with a patient's ability to trust their doctor if in the back of their mind there was the thought, maybe this doctor wants me to end my life. Not knowing if you have the option is the biggest barrier. Once you know you have the option, people want to live. Coming up in this special episode, I'm talking to GPs in Scotland on both sides of the argument about assisted dying. I'm also speaking to Liam MacArthur about why he's introducing the bill and what happens next. And to GP Dr Sandesh Galain, a Conservative member of the Scottish Parliament who chaired the medical advisory group that produced a report on how assisted dying should work from a medical point of view. I also speak to Jackie Roberts, who lives in Edinburgh and has incurable breast cancer, and Kevin Yule, who's involved with an organisation called Not Dead Yet that represents disabled people who are against assisted dying. And we hear from Dr Catherine Forrest, an American family doctor who practices in California where assisted dying has been legal since 2016. She explains the impact the change in law has had and speaks very movingly about her own personal experience of her husband, Will, who chose an assisted death in 2021. The issues of assisted dying and euthanasia have always divided doctors, but there are signs that in recent years there's been a shift in some parts of the medical profession. Before we go any further, it's perhaps important to understand some of the terminology here. Assisted dying doesn't necessarily mean euthanasia. Euthanasia refers to a process where a doctor would administer a lethal dose of a medication that would lead to a patient's death. Assisted dying or an assisted death can sometimes refer to euthanasia in countries where that is legal, but it also covers the process where medication that will help a patient end their life is prescribed by a doctor within some kind of legal framework. In this situation, the patient would take the medication themselves in their own home or place of choice. Just so things are clear in this podcast, when I talk about assisted dying, we'll be talking about patients taking medication themselves to end their lives, and euthanasia will refer specifically to when doctors administer medication to end a person's life. The bill that's proposed in Scotland is very much about assisted dying, not euthanasia. Patients will be required to take any medication themselves. It's probably also important to mention here that groups and individuals opposed to assisted dying will generally refer to this process as assisted suicide because that's what they believe it is. There will be mentions of assisted suicide in this podcast, but I'll be using the term assisted dying throughout because that's what the Scottish Bill and most other bills that have been debated are called. And this is also how the BMA and many other medical organisations now refer to it. So what does the law currently say? 
In England and Wales, it's against the law to assist or encourage another person to take their own life under the Suicide Act of 1961. In Northern Ireland, it's illegal under the Criminal Justice Act of 1966. In Scotland, assisting a person to take their own life is not an official crime and there is no specific prosecution policy. But there are a number of possible crimes in Scottish law that could come into play in cases where someone has helped another person to take their own life, including murder, culpable homicide and reckless endangerment. Euthanasia is illegal across the UK under the Homicide Act of 1957 and cases involving euthanasia could be prosecuted as murder or manslaughter. Away from Scotland, the State Assembly on the island of Jersey has approved legalising assisted dying in principle and under the current timetable, assisted dying could be legal on Jersey by the end of 2025. The Isle of Man is also set to debate legalising assisted dying. In England, an assisted dying bill was debated in the House of Commons in 2015, but failed to reach a second reading. Since then, three further bills have been introduced to the House of Lords, but made little progress. In Scotland, bills were introduced to the Scottish Parliament in 2010 and 2013, but both were rejected. A previous attempt to change legislation in Scotland in 2004 didn't get the required number of supporting members of Scottish Parliament to be introduced as a bill. These have all been private members or members' bills, which means they are brought before parliaments or the House of Lords by individual members rather than being tabled by a political party or the government of the day. When they are tabled, members of parliament are usually allowed a free vote on the issue. So why does Member of Scottish Parliament Liam MacArthur think now is the time to revisit the debate on assisted dying in Scotland? And why is he tabling this members' bill? I believe that the current ban on assisted dying in Scotland is no longer sustainable. It's leading to too many instances where individuals at the end of life are left in an invidious position of enduring a perhaps a protracted, often painful and undignified end. Despite the best endeavours of palliative care and specialist palliative care, we are seem to be comfortable countenancing the fact that those with the financial means and with the physical capacity to take themselves off to Switzerland are able to, to seek an assisted death. In effect, we've outsourced it. We're seeing situations where, where people are not able to have the conversations they should be having with their doctors, with their medical practitioners, with their families, with their friends. And that seems to be a wholly unsatisfactory situation. The last time we voted on it was in 2015. So I think just in terms of parliamentary arithmetic, it's worth pointing out we've had two elections since then. So about two thirds of the parliament haven't had an opportunity to, to vote on this. In the intervening years, a number of countries and states around the world taking forward their own legislation. I mean, most notably, I would say the states in, in Australia and New Zealand, where actually the model that they've taken forward, where it's limited to somebody with a terminal illness and mental capacity, various other safeguards. But that model is probably closer to the sort of proposals I'm bringing forward. But those international examples, I think, give give credence to the fact that this is a change in the law that's significant. We need to get the detail right, but there's increasing amounts of evidence that it can be safely and successfully introduced and that it commands public confidence as well as, as public support. Several polls suggest that there is broad support from the public for a change in the law. A poll of 1,758 adults across Great Britain by YouGov, conducted in June 2021, found that 73% of people supported a change in the law to legalise assisted dying for people with a terminal illness. The public consultation on Liam MacArthur's bill received 14,038 responses, and he believes the responses highlight a shift to more people being in favour of a change in the law. 
what stands out in relation to the consultation compared to consultations on previous bills is the extent to which either those with a terminal illness or those who have had an experience of a family member or a close friend going through a bad death those personal stories are informing that debate in a way that we haven't seen before. This is leading to people coming to the same conclusion that whatever change in the law is introduced, and, and I would argue that the proposal I'm bringing forward are probably as tightly defined as, as you could get, we cannot go on as as we are at the moment. We're putting people, as I say, in this position where they either are enduring pretty unpleasant, certainly undignified deaths, or they're actually taking matters into their own hands, often with even more traumatic consequences, either for them or for those that they leave behind. Of course, the results of polls are influenced by the type of questions that are asked, and arguably more people who support a change in the law are likely to respond to a consultation by Parliament than those who are happy with the status quo. But what about the views of the medical profession? These are the people who would be crucial to actually carrying out assisted dying. In September 2021, the British Medical Association, the BMA, dropped its official stance of being opposed to assisted dying and adopted a neutral position. This followed a narrow vote in favour of the move at its annual representative meeting, which passed with 49% in favour and 48% against. The vote followed a survey by the BMA in early 2020, which found that of almost 29,000 doctors, 40% believe that the BMA should actively support attempts to change the law to legalise assisted dying, 21% thought the BMA should adopt a neutral position and 33% said the BMA should remain opposed to assisted dying. In 2020, the Royal College of GPs also reviewed its stance on assisted dying following a survey of members. However, it decided to remain opposed to a change in the law. In that survey, 40% of GPs supported a change in the law to back assisted dying 11% said the college should take a neutral stance, while 47% of members backed opposing a change in the law. But another thing the RCGP poll showed was a huge shift in support for assisted dying. A previous survey seven years earlier in 2013 found that 77% of RCGP members opposed a change in the law to legalise assisted dying, which had dropped to 47% by 2020. Elsewhere, the Royal College of Physicians has now also adopted a neutral position, as has the Royal College of Nursing. But while it is significant that many of these organisations have moved to a neutral position on assisted dying, it is important to stress that this does not mean any of them actively back a change in the law. It just means that they're neutral. But it does show a real shift in attitudes among some parts of the medical profession and nursing. One GP who has changed his view about assisted dying in recent years is Dr Drummond Begg, who's a GP in Midlothian, just south of Edinburgh. If I can tell you a story, and this patient really got me thinking about whether I agree with assisted dying or not myself, whether people should have a choice. This is a patient who was diagnosed with cancer, a patient I'd looked after over many years. He had some initial treatment and it wasn't successful. And moving into talking about palliative care. And then the behaviour changed and and he really wasn't communicating with me. Two or three weeks later, I found he'd gone to Switzerland, to Dignitas, and he had had assistance with dying. We had had no conversation whatsoever. When I spoke to his family after the event, he hadn't wanted to speak to me because he felt that that would implicate me in the eyes of the law. 
So the first reason for change is we have to change this law. And the crazy thing about this story is I think if we'd had an honest conversation, he may not have made the choices that he'd made. So this is to enable us to have honest and open conversations. It was a moment where I realised that people need the freedom to choose. I probably be with many doctors that felt that we're there to save lives and this would somehow tarnish our image as doctors. Another thing that's come out of discussions with colleagues is that it's not about us, it's about the people we serve. I think the vast majority of people will not choose this route. For a small number of people whose deaths, no matter what medicine may offer, are going to be extremely challenging for them and their families, they can have discussions about that, about what their options are, and have alternatives in what we currently have to offer them. In practice, I'm not going to be telling people, look, you need to consider this option. That's just not going to be what I'm going to be doing in practice. People may choose to come to ask for help, though. And that's what we're about. There's an old saying in medicine, care always, cure sometimes. Now, death is inevitable, and we need to be more comfortable about talking about it. It's not failure. It is what happens to us. But of course, many GPs remain very much opposed to assisted dying. Dr Peter Kilman is a GP in Fife and during his career worked for 10 years as a Macmillan Cancer Lead GP in North East Scotland and spent two years as the Scottish Government's National Clinical Lead for Palliative Care. He's involved with an organisation called Our Duty of Care, a group of healthcare professionals who are against any change in the law around assisted dying and euthanasia, although all of his views in this podcast are his own. As a doctor, when when I look after people who are dying, I looked after them as they die, not in order that they die. And I want to help them with the process of dying and complete their life well. The job of a doctor is to try and make people better. When we talk to patients, we try and make sure we make good joint decisions with them for what's in their best interest. Now, normally that means trying to get them better. Sometimes it might mean stopping treatment and making them comfortable. I think it would interfere with a patient's ability to trust their doctor if in the back of their mind there was the thought, maybe this doctor wants me to end my life. What's being proposed is assisted suicide. That's giving assistance to die to people with drugs that they have to take themselves. There's a significant chance that could lead to euthanasia, which is a doctor directly administering life-ending drugs to a person who's given consent, usually by lethal injection. That's the case in Holland, where one in 25 deaths were at the end of a doctor's needle. And assisted dying is a bit of a euphemism, trading on the good name of palliative care. I feel as though my working life has been helping people with the process of dying. I think the current law works and any change to the law to allow assisted suicide or euthanasia will put pressure on vulnerable groups. People might fear they're being made a burden and that could be financially, emotionally or a care burden to their family or to society. People who are frail, elderly, sick or depressed people could be made to feel they have a a duty to die and be subtly steered to suicide. The second reason is the slippery slope. What that means is it's very clear from international evidence that that safeguards don't work. 
what people say is that this is a very limited change in the law for, for a very small group of people, for people who are terminally ill, extend to those who are chronically ill. It often starts with adults, but can extend to children. And it's usually for mentally competent people. But in other places, it extends to people who lack capacity. And it's, it's really clear from the evidence worldwide, the once assisted suicide is legalised. A number of countries go on to voluntary euthanasia because the actual process of assisted suicide have many complications with people taking the drugs, and particularly in Canada at the moment. A lot of evidence coming out from that that what was legalised as assisted suicide within a year became euthanasia. I think that's very likely to happen. So I think it'll dramatically change the relationship between people and their doctors and their families. International examples of assisted dying are used on both sides of the debate about whether it should be legalised. Some form of assisted dying is now legal in many countries around the world. In almost all of these, it's restricted to adults. However, in Belgium and the Netherlands, it does include children with parental consent. In the Netherlands, this is restricted to over 12s. Euthanasia is legal in far fewer places than assisted dying, notably Canada, Belgium, the Netherlands and New Zealand. In most places, assisted dying is limited to people with a terminal illness. But in some places, including Canada, Belgium, Switzerland and the Netherlands, it can include those experiencing physical conditions that lead to unbearable suffering which cannot be relieved but who are not terminally ill. In Belgium and the Netherlands, this can include those whose suffering arises from mental illness. In most countries, assisted dying is funded in line with other healthcare costs and therefore restricted to citizens. Switzerland is one of the only countries where assisted dying is not restricted to residents. Figures from the Swiss clinic Dignitas show that between 1998 and 2021, 498 UK citizens travelled to Switzerland to be assisted in their death by the organisation. In some places where assisted dying has been legalised, laws have changed and adapted over time to expand its use. For example, in Canada, assisted dying and euthanasia were legalised in 2016 for people with a terminal illness or whose natural death was reasonably foreseeable, which was how the law was worded. The law changed in 2021 to also allow people without a terminal diagnosis to request an assisted death if they have a serious illness, disease or disability and are experiencing unbearable physical or mental suffering as a result. There were plans to extend this to also include mental illness this year, but that's been paused until 2024. Those opposed to assisted dying have reported grave concerns about the way the law has extended in Canada. They point to a number of high-profile cases where assisted dying has been offered as part of treatment pathways, or where they say the safeguards have failed. However, many places have retained strict rules around having a terminal diagnosis. Assisted dying has been legal in Oregon in the United States since 1997, and it has never extended beyond terminally ill adults. Patients have to be mentally competent and they must be able to take the life-ending medicine themselves, which was the case in 1997 and is still the case today. Perhaps in a reflection of these different approaches, the proportion of deaths in Canada in 2021 that was an assisted death or euthanasia was 3.3%. In Oregon, this figure is 0.59%. Another common concern raised from those who are against assisted dying is coercion and that any process introduced could be open to abuse. This is certainly one of Dr Peter Kielman's concerns. Coercion is a big danger that's impossible to safeguard against. Doctors who look after dying patients know how fluid 
dying patients' views are. We know they're subject to suggestion and coercion. We know they can have good days and bad days and change their mind. Elderly people do suffer abuse, including psychological and financial manipulation. I've known of families where half of the family want one thing for their elderly relative and half the family wants another thing. I remember speaking to a relative in the nursing home where I work. I was talking about their frail mother and you know, said I wasn't sure how long she had. And they said, Doc, can you not just move things on a bit? This is actually costing quite a lot of money. There is real concern about relatives pushing people to assisted dying. Dr Kilman argues that rather than looking at assisted dying, we should be working to improve palliative care. It's really important that we tell people that good palliative care can deal with the overwhelming number of nasty symptoms and and severe pain that you have. I would be a liar if I said that every single thing could be dealt with immediately. But the vast majority of people within a week or two will have most of their symptoms well controlled with good palliative care. There's always need for more training because good palliative care takes time to listen to people and try and understand what's needed. Many people who have been really ill and maybe have a terminal diagnosis and they've said to me, doctor, can you give me the blue pill? It's, I think I referenced the cyanide. So people are saying, doctor, would you kill me? But are they saying that? As doctors, we are trained to think about what people's ideas, concerns and expectations are. And when I've listened to people and then try to unpack what people have said. They've actually not been saying, give me some medicine. They've wanted to know if if I'm going to be a companion on their journey. Deal not just with the physical pain, but with what Cicely Saunders called total pain. Physical pain, yes, but psychological pain, spiritual pain, social pain. Dealing with all their concerns and worries. That takes time. That takes a whole load of team. I fear as if we end people's life very shortly, that might just be a fast track and people won't have the time to do, I think, what's what's really important. The people I've seen who said to me, can I have the blue pill doctor? Many of them said to me a few weeks later, do you remember I said that? Or just say, we'll not talk about that doc, because it wasn't a persistent, settled decision to end their life. It was just really a cry for help. And I've seen many people who really had kind of almost turned their face to the wall, live for many months, even years sometimes, live to their daughter's wedding, a reconciliation with a family member, live to see a grandchild being born, made good use of those end days. Assisted dying is legal in several states in America, including California, where Dr. Catherine Forrest is a family physician. She was involved with work that helped pave the way for a change in state law to legalise assisted dying, which is known as aid in dying in California. Since then, in her role as a family doctor, she's worked with many individuals and their families who've chosen an assisted death. Dr Forrest also has a very personal connection to assisted dying. Her husband, Will, chose an assisted death in 2021. I spoke to her at the end of last year while she was visiting Scotland to speak with members of the Scottish Parliament. We are not the first state in the United States that passed the law. Oregon and Washington predated us by two decades. 
For a long time, Californians that were interested in aid and dying justice in the UK would go to Switzerland. In my state, they would travel to Oregon. And after that had been going on for some time, it was very clear that our patients had moved and our society had moved ahead of the physicians. And that one of the big barriers was actually not society, but the conservative nature of the physician community. And understandably, and I was one of the people by the way, that moved in my own opinion by listening carefully to our patients and thinking about how did this happen in other jurisdictions. Assisted dying in California works in a very similar way to how it does in Oregon and is broadly the same as what's proposed in Scotland. Adult residents must have a terminal diagnosis and have mental capacity. Two doctors are required to assess the patient and sign off on the assisted death. No doctor is required to participate in the process if they choose not to. Dr. Forrest believes assisted dying brings huge benefits to patients. In practice, what happens is that the person just has just tremendous relief knowing they have the option. The data has shown us over and over again, most people do not use the option, but there is a tremendous psychological and deep within sense of relief that they could if they needed it. In our state, about 0.2% of people actually use the option. But the rippling effect of the knowledge that it's possible cannot be measured, obviously, but is tremendous. By far, most people choose to be at home. Physicians like to be there or or, uh, or make themselves available. I, for instance, do either. Um, all of us make ourselves very available to the family um, so that we can answer questions during the, the case. But um, just as in hospice care, most people die surrounded by their family and their loved ones. So how has the law changed things in California? Our law requires us to talk about all the options at the end of life. And the nature of these conversations that our society is so terrified of, Uh, It brings those into the vernacular. How do we talk about death and dying? What will happen to me? What will happen to my beloveds? Um, It's just been tremendous impact on the culture of death and dying in in the United States. We also were good at conversations about prolonging life, or as some people say, prolonging death. What might it be like to live on a respirator? Well, when we poll people, people don't want to live that way. They increasingly know what they do want, which is to die peacefully amongst loved ones at home without pain and suffering. When we legalize the ability to have those conversations, it turns out that the drive to to have every moment that's not suffering is the greatest drive. And people's fears, and the fears are popping up in your country just as they did in mine. It's, It's understandable. Most MPs, most of our legislators are one- hard or painful death away from stepping out of the way so that others or anyone who needs aid in dying has the option. Someone's at the end of their life, taking away their agency is really quite spectacular and very patriarchal decision-making. I feel for the physicians. I have been that physician. We are very slow to change. I think it's good that we're so careful, but it's sometimes it's time to step aside and let a patient decide And what's the role of the family doctor in this process? I'm interested in things happening with excellence. So the role of a family doctor is that many of us have upped our education level. We've trained thousands. And because of the general increase in interest in knowing about the options, even if people don't participate, um, everyone has to up their game about learning about options. And that's a good thing. 
we don't have enough palliative care in the U.S. We don't have insurance that covers it. All of us are better at palliative care now. Have there been any problems or challenges with the change in the law? I would say that the biggest problem is that we really didn't understand that people don't make up their mind if they're suffering and want to use aid and dying. They are wavering when they're suffering about what's the right thing to do. The biggest thing we did was we changed the wait period at the beginning of the year to 48 hours. And the reason is because not knowing if you have the option is the biggest barrier. Once you know you have the option, people want to live. And in their, if they're able to endure, they want the time with their beloveds. Once they know that they don't have to suffer then they're really interested in exploring options that physicians, uh, and, and, I, and I understand this completely, unless we can do it really well, we're afraid. It's really about suffering. Can you relieve suffering and can you do it well? And that's been the biggest barrier is getting people trained and feeling comfortable that they will be identified with that side. These were all false fears. First time that anyone provides aid in dying, they find it a deeply gratifying experience because the person is at peace and their family had a, an experience that wasn't traumatic. Most physicians change their mind when they realize they want it for themselves. And if they wanted it for themselves, they would have to have another physician who would do it. That changed a lot of minds. You've had your own very personal experience of assisted dying. You know, my husband of 37 years used aid in dying last year. He had a mid complication of COVID that looked very much like ALS and he was in January and he couldn't move or talk or eat. He knew he'd die by choking or, or suffocating. He didn't know until the very last minute, but he knew that he could. And then he could spend his time instead of worrying about what would happen. He could spend time with our children. He could spend time with his family. Nobody knows, but because he had the option, he could live fully in every minute. If I think to myself, if I'm looking at the, the physician community as if they were me, what would you want for your beloved? What would you want for yourself? Those are the people who move. So I'm hoping that as time goes on, just as with anything, if you knew you had a, a way to help someone suffering. And of course, no one thinks it's going to happen to them. I've been involved with this for years. He was 65 years old. No one thinks it's going to happen to them. But he did. And he had the option. And and if we lived in a different state, he would have died the way that people die. We couldn't drive him. He couldn't have survived that. It happened so quickly. He would have suffered tremendously. He would have been in a hospital. Of course, during COVID, that meant that none of my family could have been around us. And instead, we were all together and it was very peaceful. So this is a direct experience. I'm a physician. I've worked at the two top hospitals in my state as a professor. But as a widow, as a mother... Tell me that wasn't the best treatment for someone dying this way in this, these times. Someone else might make a different decision, but for him, he was a brilliant scientist. His mind was completely there. And I would have done anything for another day, another week. I would have done anything. Not my choice, his choice. I liken it really to uh, other things that take societal change. You know, 100 years ago, I wouldn't be a physician. Things change when they change and conservative organizations change slowly. Medicine is a conservative place for many reasons, some of them good and some of them not so good. This is one of those times I feel like it's good for some of the conservative old guard perhaps to reconsider the domination when society has already moved. 
We've talked a bit about the general public and seen what doctors think about all of this, but what about patients? How would a change in the law affect them? Jackie Roberts is 74 and lives in Edinburgh. She has incurable breast cancer and believes it's time for the law to change. 26 years ago, I had breast cancer and I beat it. And I've lived for 26 years quite happily and I felt something different in my breast and I just went to my GP. They got me into the Western within two weeks and yes, it's back. It's stage four metastatic. Don't know when I'm going to die. I've done 18 months, which is absolutely fabulous. But at the end of the day, I saw my mum tried to take her own life twice when she was dying of cancer and my dad had a very hard time when he was dying of cancer and I was just like a choice. My mum really suffered. She was a very intelligent lady and I think losing her independence, first of all, really got to her. The morphine and oromorph and all the different things, they touched her pain, but they didn't really. She couldn't stand eventually and I cared for her six months, which was very hard for both of us. Has that sort of shaped your view about assisted death? Yes. Before that, my father, he had prostate cancer, but then it spread. He had very difficult time for six months. He stayed with me. It was just terrible at the end. So I started thinking about it then. Then with my mum, it just sealed it, so to speak. And I thought, that's not right. It shouldn't be. We don't treat our pets the same, to be fair. We give them you know, a nice peaceful death if they're in pain. So why can we not have one? And I'm just so pro, pro, pro and assisted dying. If you've seen or lived with, or maybe like myself, you've got it, uh, an incurable disease, it's at the back of your mind all the time. You know, you deal with it and then you get little thoughts and you see things and maybe adverse will come up for funeral plans and everything. And I just think, what's going to happen to me? How long have I got? And which way am I going to go when I die? Is it just about having choice and control? And if you did have that, do you think it would improve your quality of life now? Definitely. I could plan what was going to happen. I don't want to suffer. I don't want to end up in pain. And I would like to know I can have a choice. I don't know if I would consider what my mother would consider twice. Maybe I've got fabulous friends and you think, I don't want to be a burden to them. I want to keep my independence. I want to be able to do. But I realise that I'm not just going to die like that, hopefully. But it will be a gradual thing. But I just don't want to go down that route of not knowing what's in front of me and what's involved. Jackie highlighted there that her mother made two attempts to take her own life after receiving a terminal diagnosis. And this is something that those who support assisted dying point to as a reason why the law should change. Dignity in Dying, an organisation that campaigns for assisted dying, estimates that between 300 and 650 British people with a terminal diagnosis take their own lives each year, and a significantly greater number will make an attempt to take their own life. Data from the Office for National Statistics last year showed that suicide rates for people one year after a diagnosis with a low survival cancer was 2.4 times higher than for matched controls. In those diagnosed with cancer, this was 23.6 deaths per 100,000 people, compared with 9.7 deaths per 100,000 people in the healthy matched group. Of course, not all patients feel as Jackie does or want to see a change in the law. Some patient groups actively campaign against assisted dying, Many of these people have fears linked to the issues raised by Dr Peter Kilman earlier that disabled or elderly people could feel pressured to request an early death. 
One such group is Not Dead Yet, a network of disability activists that campaigns against assisted dying. They argue that it's often too difficult to make a proper distinction between a terminal illness and a disability, particularly in those who have progressive conditions. Professor Kevin Yule is involved with Not Dead Yet. He's not disabled himself, but he's been a spokesperson for the group in the past. I'm Emeritus Professor of History at the University of Sunderland, and I've been writing about this topic for a very long time. So there was this sentiment really behind a lot of the impetus towards assisted suicide, saying, I wouldn't want to live like that. And that sentiment was actually very disturbing in the sense that it devalued disabled lives. We all think, I wouldn't want to live like that. And then it takes a little bit of adjustment. And then you do live like that. And you you regard your life as, as just as valuable before, but different. And I think that is a real problem with the pro-euthanasia, pro-assisted dying, pro-assisted suicide people, is that there's, there's this sentiment that disabled lives are not as valuable as others and that people would want to have a means of of dying peacefully if they were ever disabled. And I think that's very wrong. And Not Dead Yet was first formed in the United States as a group of disabled people really trying to put forward a different perspective on euthanasia and assisted suicide, saying, you know, just don't look at our lives and assume that they're less valuable than anybody else's. They are just as valuable to us as any of yours are to you. So it also extended into the UK, And when I was first opposed to assisted suicide, being an atheist, I wasn't naturally a member of any of the religious groups opposing assisted suicide. So I gravitated rather naturally towards not dead yet. Plus, it is one of my biggest concerns is that inevitably assisted suicide divides people into two. Some groups are very much prevented. You know, there is a strenuous campaign to prevent the suicides of uh, most people in society. And yet when you get assisted suicide legalized, that means that certain people are actually nudged towards suicide, or at least their lives are considered eligible for suicide, which, which says something about the way we value people in society and in particular disabled lives. The people behind the Scottish law that they're drafting at the moment, and, and certainly other jurisdictions around the world, they would argue that assisted dying is very much aimed at terminally ill people and not necessarily disabled people. So what would you what would you say to that? I think the problem emerges as soon as you define death as medical treatment for suffering, saying let's kill people if they're suffering in this particular circumstance. But once you do that what you find is that there's a demand for it. So anybody who's suffering, therefore saying, well, that's not very fair. I have seven months to live, and yet you're making me suffer. But the problem is once you say, well, uh, we're going to offer you death as treatment, it creates demand, and it inevitably leads towards people saying, well, what about me? I have to suffer with this disability or this degenerative condition for much, much longer than six months to live. That's not fair. The other very frightening aspect is that, of course, euthanasia is much, much cheaper than is any other healthcare option. There's a study in Canada finding out how much could be saved. And if a person is in the last six months of life, what they call track one in Canada uh, for, for euthanasia and assisted suicide, then they save around $16,000 
in, in, you know, which is probably about £10,000 at the moment. If it's extended beyond that to so-called Track 2 patients, then we're talking about savings of $65,000. Not Dead Yet says that if people with disabilities were provided with more support to be able to live dignified lives, then there would be no need for assisted dying. Could you explain the argument behind that? Again, this is playing out in Canada as we speak, is that many people are in the situation where they may wait for six months or more for some sort of pain release. And this is very, very unacceptable. So you have many people faced with the choice of suffering huge amounts of pain or uh, opting for euthanasia and or assisted suicide. So this is a reality in Canada. And I think the, the fears of disabled people, that is, is the sort of brutal reality, is it's, it tends to be people um, on, the, on the periphery of life and we are judging them by their physical characteristics and saying your life is not as valuable as our lives. Everybody on, on every side of it agrees that palliative care needs to be improved. And I think once you have palliative care, then the problem of assisted dying really goes by the way. For instance, hospice doctors oppose legalizing assisted suicide by a larger margin than anybody else in society. Why is that? That's because they see most deaths are peaceful and most deaths are, you know, not the way we would imagine them in our most terrible imaginings. I think of those who know much more about death, hospice doctors, hospice, hospice care workers, and these people um, are much more opposed than the general public. And I think the general public uses its imagination and says, I could never live like that. And of course, people in that situation do live like that. And in fact, enjoy their lives. They say it's changed, but it's not uh, diminished in that sense. Elizabeth Kubler-Ross, who was a pioneering author of On Death and Dying, made the point that, the, you know, you're robbing the dying person of an, of an experience, which death is part of life and dying is, is still living when you're dying and do very valuable things in the last few weeks and months of life. Professor Yule mentioned there that hospice doctors are overwhelmingly against assisted dying. This is something that comes from the BMA survey from 2020, which I mentioned earlier. As well as being asked whether the BMA should change its position on assisted dying, the survey also asked doctors whether, in principle, they supported or opposed a change in the law to allow doctors to prescribe drugs for eligible patients to end their own lives. The BMA provides a breakdown of those results by specialty, and of 604 palliative care doctors that responded, 76% said that they were opposed to a change in the law. This is the specialty with the largest proportion of doctors who opposed a change in the law. The bill in Scotland does intend to have safeguards in place to address some of the concerns raised by Dr Peter Kilman and Professor Kevin Yule. So how would assisted dying work if it becomes legal in Scotland? Here's Liam MacArthur again. In terms of, of safeguards, this would have to be initiated by the individual themselves. There would need to be two doctors, one of whom could have no prior um, relationship with the patient, who would need to determine both the terminal illness and mental capacity. Part of those discussions, there would need to be a discussion of all of the kind of end of life choices available, including palliative care, specialist palliative care. 
and a discussion also about the reasons why the individual has come to this point and what underlies the request for an assisted death. Through that process, in a sense, what you get is an informed decision by the individual, but also an informed assessment by two doctors that this is a decision that's been arrived at of free will, that there isn't undue influence or duress being exercised behind the scenes. And as I say, it would require both um, doctors to sign off. If either wasn't satisfied that the criteria were met, the process comes to a halt. There'd be a further cooling off period of sort of 14 days from the original request. In a sense, that a lot of that time may be taken up by the assessments, etc., and then the medical practitioner that would bring the, the medication to the individual at the place of their choosing at the end, again, would both assess capacity, but also confirm that the, the individual wished to proceed. It is not unheard of in jurisdictions where the option of assisted death is available for people to step back from it at, at the very last stage. That would need to remain an option um, right up until the end. The the option of assisted dying provides is a kind of insurance policy that you can, whatever the prognosis is, there's more of a chance to get more out of that time knowing that if things get too bad, you have this option to fall back on if that's what you so choose. One thing Liam MacArthur didn't mention there, but is relevant, is that this would only apply for adults, those aged over 16, who had been resident in Scotland for at least 12 months. As part of the process of producing the bill, Liam MacArthur asked Member of the Scottish Parliament and Glasgow GP, Dr Sandesh Ghislaine, to chair a medical advisory group to explore the healthcare-related issues linked to assisted dying and to offer advice on how best to proceed. The group was made up of GPs, nurses, pharmacists palliative care specialists and others. The final report produced by the group outlines the issues, challenges and opportunities that the medical profession would be presented with if assisted dying were legalised in Scotland. It also suggests a framework for those who wish to be involved in the assisted dying process, while making clear that doctors would not be required to participate if they choose not to. It stresses that if legislation is passed, doctors and other healthcare professionals will have a key role to play in developing suitable protocols and guidance, I spoke to Dr Sandesh Ghislaine, who chaired that group when the report was published at the end of last year. I think that we do dying really badly in the United Kingdom because we don't talk about death and dying. If we do dying that badly, we need to do better. That's why I thought, yes, I'd love to chair a group. I think I'm uniquely placed to chair this group because I see it both from the political point of view and I see it from well, being a GP. We see people dying all the time, much more than most other professions. And then they came to, well, who would be in that group? We wanted a broad spectrum of people from across um, the medical profession. You need people who are, are willing to, to engage in a discussion about it rather than be dogmatic in their thinking. And I think that's what we've got. When we had our first meeting, what everyone wanted was to hear the experience from, from other places because why make the same mistakes they made at the start? Why not learn uh, and, and skip those mistakes uh, and and put in place what they would suggest we do. What would you say the key points from the report are that, that you'd want doctors to know about? There's two big key messages that I want people to know of this report. The first, this report has come out with compassion, with the patient and the doctor in mind, and trying to create a process which is as seamless as possible giving safeguards where needed. Key focus and key driving message that we always had at the heart of it 
is a patient with a family. The other one is there are some clear messages that we have not put in the report because it would be inappropriate. So an example of that is what drugs do we use? And the reason for that was our pharmacist said, well, how do you know in two years' time when this bill's delivered that this is the best combination of drugs to take? How do you know these drugs are available in five years' time for some primary legislation? What if we've developed something much better? We need more experts than we had in the room to make those decisions. So we need the Royal College of Pharmacy. We need the Royal College of GPs. We need these organizations to sit down and say, actually, this is the combination of drugs that, that we would recommend that we use. And then they could look, come together again in some years' time and say, well, actually, that's outdated now. We need to use this. The report's very clear that doctors will not be forced to be involved with assisted dying. Uh, and you say that conscientious objections should be accommodated in the legislation, don't you? I just want to take you across to abortion. It still divides medics, despite it being law for, for a long time now. And that is only right that they have that ability to say, I'm sorry, but I can't go through with this. I don't see the difference being as big between abortion and assisted dying. And I think they're very similar arguments that we can make about both. There will be people who won't agree with it, but just like abortion, they're allowed to conscientiously object and refer to others who will. When people are sick, they have a right to be involved in the treatment options they have. And that ranges from, I will go for drugs over surgery, this option over that option, even though your advice is not to do that. But it also goes down to, I don't want to have treatment. That's their right to, to have that choice. So why is it any different when it comes to the way somebody dies? We have all seen people die in horrendous circumstances in pain, people dying because their lungs just stop working and they choke to death. And despite the best efforts of palliative care, they're not dying in a, in a good way. This gives people the right to choose the way that they die. And quite frankly, who am I to tell somebody how they should live, how they should die? The report is clear that only self-administration should be provided and not euthanasia. In cases where patients are unable to swallow, the report suggests that a medical device such as an IV could be prepared for the patient to self-administer the drugs. An assisting practitioner, be that a doctor or nurse, should deliver the medication to the patient and remain with them until they have either administered it or decided not to proceed. The report suggests that in most cases, this practitioner would be one of the two doctors who had assessed the patient earlier in the process. The report also recommends that mandatory training for healthcare professionals who are involved in assisted dying should be included as part of the legislation. It also suggested that a peer support network should be established in Scotland before assisted dying is implemented if the legislation were to pass. This would enable those involved with assisted dying to discuss cases and share experiences. The report is also clear that even if the law is changed to allow assisted dying, there needs to be increased specialist palliative care provision across Scotland. So will the law change in Scotland? I asked Liam MacArthur whether he thought his fellow MSPs would back the bill and if it stood a good chance of becoming law this time. I think it does. I think on this occasion, 
the bill is as tightly drawn as it possibly can be in terms of terminal illness and mental capacity. If there are other safeguards that colleagues wish to see put into the bill, then we need to back the general principles and then get on with um, considering amendments to tighten it up further. So the sense I get is that political mood has caught up with where the public mood is, and that's significant. A bit like the population at large, a lot of that I think is driven by MSPs who talk about their own personal experience. And what's the process from here? How long will it all take? Liam MacArthur says he is confident that he will introduce the bill before the end of the year. Once that happens, the lead committee responsible for the bill will seek evidence from stakeholders and the public before a stage one report is drafted and voted on in Parliament. If that is supported, the amendments process gets underway. These amendments are then debated and voted on in Parliament. There is then a debate to vote on whether to pass the bill. In all likelihood, that process from when the committee starts its work through to the end will take a year. Clearly, even if the law is passed, there will likely be a fairly significant period between then and it actually coming into practice. During this time, medical bodies and other relevant groups would be involved with setting clear guidelines about how the process would work, including which medications would be used. If the recommendations from the medical advisory group were followed, this period would also be used to set up training programmes for doctors and other practitioners and a care coordinator service that would help patients to understand assisted dying and how it works. You can plan everything else in life. You can plan when to get married, you can plan when to get divorced, but you can't plan how you die. Whatever happens in Scotland, there will always be doctors and people who are for and against assisted dying. But whether or not assisted dying is legalised, everyone I spoke to for this podcast was really clear that we need to do dying better in this country. We need better funded palliative care and access to more specialised palliative care. Huge amounts of the end-of-life care provided across the UK is paid for via charitable donations, not by government funding, and arguably that needs to change. We also need to get better at talking about death and dying, even though we might find it uncomfortable or difficult or are afraid of it. One of the things that really struck me when talking to Dr Forrest was that all physicians in California had become better at palliative care because of the additional training introduced when assisted dying was legalised and because people more generally were more open to discussing death with their families and their doctors. That is surely a positive thing and something we should aspire to even without legalised assisted dying. Thank you to everyone who took the time to talk to me for this special edition of our podcast. You can find more information about the issues we've discussed and links to the sources for any facts and figures quoted in this podcast in the description for this episode. This podcast was produced by Serena Dean.